The dominant approaches to AI and thinking about intelligence have changed over time, and our current estimations of what it means to be intelligent, or to do AI, are, for better or for worse, influenced by the recent successes of connectionism. But there are still important voices in the room that come at these questions from a markedly different perspective. Professor Joanna Bryson developed modular agent architectures during her PhD, and early in her career studied natural intelligence in primates and other non-human animals to derive insights about learning and cognition. She brings a wealth of insight to bear on some of the most salient problems about modern AI. We recorded this episode before GPT-4 was released, but I think many of her comments apply here as well. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you aren't already subscribed to the Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Joanna Bryson. Professor Bryson, I think that in my estimation, your body of work seems to be really diverse and come from a pretty interesting place. And so I'm very curious how you got into AI in the first place and more or less what the field looked like as you were getting interested. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, I guess, you know, in the very first place, uh, I should be honest, I wanted to be uh, Jane Goodall. So she was my role model as a child. But at some point, um, and that's partly because I was always interested in intelligence. So my, my undergraduate degree was actually behavioral science, which at that time meant non-clinical psychology. Now it means some kind of uh, a business degree. I did not have a business degree. I have a liberal arts degree. Uh, but anyway, the... Um, I, I wanted to be a scientist like Jane Goodall that observed things and figured things out. But I also noticed that people were super defensive. So I thought it would be more interesting to work on animals than people. So I really wanted to, to study like the evolution of, of uh, intelligence. Um, but I was a sci-fi fan. I started watching Star Trek with my dad uh, on my mom's bridge nights, you know, when I was 13 or something. And so I, I knew about AI. And also just as an undergraduate, I, I just needed money. And I found out from the other students that the best job available at Chicago at that time was um, was a computer science tutor because they didn't have a computer science department. They'd kind of killed it uh, in the 60s and then, they, then it was rebirthed uh, during the 80s um, because they don't do engineering, but they do do science and you have to fight about whether computer science is. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so therefore, it was the only thing where an undergraduate could have a position that would be a graduate position somewhere else. And so that was why I did it, just because it was super interesting. And I also knew I was a good programmer. I'd done one class in high school. So I, uh, yeah, actually, believe it or not, you know, I thought at the time, like, oh, I'll never really make it in programming because, you know, other kids would start when they were 11 or whatever. I only had one class in my high school. But anyway, uh, it, I, I, in fact, wound up paying off my undergraduate. Um, uh, debts with with uh, programming. I programmed professionally for five years, um, and then again I came to this quandary of like, I want to do a PhD, but in what? I'm interested in everything, 
And I decided that AI was a really good combination of uh, what I actually cared about and what I was actually good at. <laughs> so it was actually kind of a weaseling out. If I'd had a little more guts, I might have gone for something else. But I, I, uh, I thought that it was a good compromise. Um, and so I guess that's, that. Uh, you know, what was it like then? I actually did tutor the very first AI class uh, offered at Chicago uh, a guy named Chris Hammond was brought there from Yale, uh, and uh, he was a you know young junior faculty, and um, you know uh, uh, so back then that was his supervisor and uh, Roger Shank, and I it was it was much more symbolic. I mean there was it was this was the so yeah the 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 deep well you could call it deep learning the the back propagation revolution was just happening. So when I got to Edinburgh and I did my first you know AI degree. Uh, in in 1991 92, um, it, there was a lot of people that were doing expert systems and 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 truth maintenance systems and you know symbolic logic and whatever. But there was also these guys doing uh, machine learning. Um, uh, well, the, during my masters, there was mostly neural networks people. Um, but uh, during during my PhD, there was all these guys doing uh, graphical models like Chris Bishop and Michael Jordan were just changing the field of AI. Um, it was so exciting. And it was, it was a super exciting time. It was when, um, when uh, really, I think in ways, machine learning started leading neuroscience. So neuroscience suddenly made a lot of progress as we started understanding what it was entailed in learning. And it, 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 the, you know, when I was an undergraduate just in the 80s, we're not, you know, so we're only talking a decade apart. There was still a lot of the brain that when we looked at it, we're like, well, that's interesting. I wonder why those things are connected that way, you know? And and then only only like not even a decade later, you could write you could get this book, is Carlson Neurophysiology of Behavior. That and people understood the pathways. They're starting to get the idea. Like, for example, we thought that information came in the eyes, right? We're like, why are there neurons that are taking information towards the eyes? Well, now we understand, and going back to some of my most famous papers, we know that you need bias. You need some kind of expectation because the information you get from the world is not sufficient to understand the world, at least not in an instant. So you need like, to have had a lot of experience of different things and, and learned things from other people and all these other ways to get an in-depth understanding from this little trivial amount of information we're getting you know, with our eyes and our ears right now. One aspect of this I'm curious about is you mentioned that going into AI as a PhD seemed like a really interesting combination of the things you're interested in. And I remember there seems to be a, a fair amount of discourse in terms of the shifts we've gone through, the disciplines people are expected to be prepared in in order to study AI. I remember this document from MIT that went around some time ago about how students who wanted to do a PhD in natural language processing were expected to have a strong background in things like linguistics, among other subjects. And today, it seems very similar. A lot of people who are going to AI PhDs have the computer science math background. That seems to be the vast majority of it. And definitely, there are a lot of people who take very seriously the more interdisciplinary nature of things. But it does seem like there's an overwhelming, you need to be prepared with your linear algebra, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious how um, that looked for you at the time and sort of how you respond to that shift. Oh, that's really great. Uh, so I, I just had unbelievably, remarkably good fortune. So I am 
horribly bad at foreign languages. And after having worked for five years in the financial industry, actually as a programmer, I, uh, I wasn't sure I really wanted to go back to academia. I'd already absorbed some of the uh, biases against academia. So I decided to go abroad because I was sure I would learn from going abroad because I never had. I was from the Midwest. This is all Chicago. And so I, um, I picked, at the time, there was all this, I don't know if you remember, terrorism actually in the 70s in, in Europe. Um, and so a lot of it was coming from Ireland towards England. So I, and, and also some of it was happening in Wales, too. And so I, I chose by process of elimination the place that, that spoke English um, and wasn't as far away as Australia. <laughs> and that, that, that nobody seemed to be either blowing up or, or, or blowing people up. I, I just didn't want either side of that with Scotland. And so I just looked and then people said, oh, if you're going to Scotland, you got to go to Edinburgh. It's beautiful. Little did I know that they had at that time the only master's program, anything like it. So their Department of Artificial Intelligence was actually older than their Department of Computer Science. Wow. And it was, it, was, it was really, really, really transdisciplinary. You know, it, I, transdisciplinary is wrong. It was a combination of the disciplines. It wasn't like above them, right? It was music. It was philosophy. It was linguistics, very strong linguistics in Edinburgh. Um, neuroscience, extremely strong neuroscience in Edinburgh. Um, so it was really, really informed by all of humans, you know, human experience, as well as computer science. There was a decent computer science department there, in fact, quite, quite a good one um, by that time. And so uh, I, had the, I had the fortune of having all that. So it was really funny going from that. So that was actually my master's. Going to my, by, by the time I took my master's, I was absolutely in love with the field. And, and, I, and, and I, had, I had taken a course in robotics um, and, and just because I like making things with my hands. I hadn't really expected it to be. It became the focus. So there was this revolution happening at the time that was called um, behavior-based AI or new AI, um, where rather than trying to solve like everything and understanding everything, you know, that, rather than omniscience, they w- it was uh, targeting very specific problems and then combining those those specific uh, solutions, and um, and I knew that 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 was already what we were doing, sort of decentralizing uh, the the like the mainframes. So we've gone from the mainframe uh, sort of paradigm to the workstation and the and the intranet uh, paradigm during the period I was working in computer science. So I knew that, the, and I had also known as a, an undergraduate at Chicago that there was a connectionist theory of human intelligence, that we have different contradictory selves that express themselves. So like when you're a driver, you hate pedestrians. When you're a pedestrian, you hate driver, even though you're the same person, right? Just you're thrown into the context, you behave differently. So this all made sense to me. And so I, I knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to go to MIT. And I wanted to work with this guy named Rod Brooks. And uh, so I, by some miracle, again, I, I got that. I got that opportunity. You know, if I had applied the previous year, he was on sabbatical. But it happened, I was applied the year he was coming back from sabbatical. And he took eight people. So I wasn't even like the best person who applied to MIT. I was one of eight people that he took to try to do this big new project he was doing. So another another time I got lucky. It, it is... Um, you know, luck is when they, as I say, when opportunity meets uh, preparation. So I'm not saying that I'm not good, but uh, but I am saying that a lot of good people didn't just happen to stumble into those kinds of opportunities, and uh, and, and 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 I was very fortunate about that. So it was a huge shift from Edinburgh, where it was like absolutely it was like the liberal arts, right? Uh, and and um, if it's long because natural science is a subset of philosophy, it's a subset of liberal arts. <laughs> but to uh, to MIT, where everyone's an engineer. 
I mean, people, uh, I, Cynthia Brazil, uh, but what she was then Cynthia Farrell, you know, sat me down on a couch at one point and told, said, tell me how other people do natural language. Because we were working on this insane robotic project. And she just, she knew that the thing was Rod was trying to get at language. Um, and, and she just, she literally, like from her engineering background, her mechanical engineering almost, I don't remember what her master's was. Um, I, I remember the project, I remember the robot, and she did a great master's. But anyway, the, the, but it took her like five years. And, but the point was that she, nobody had told her that. So, so uh, MIT did not give AI degrees. Um, they gave like one AI class undergraduate and one AI class to graduate, and, there, and they overlapped, you know. Um, so, but what they had was an AI lab. So you had people coming in that were mechanical engineers or computer scientists, and that was it. And then um, I think, uh, so I never, unfortunately, I had a really bad uh, uh, advisor as an undergraduate. I've never had linear algebra, you know, and I've, I've used neural networks. Like you can, you can do an awful lot with just like nearest neighbor lookup. A lot of the stuff that people like, you know, they're, they're like, oh, we want to get out this stuff. You know, you'd be amazed by how much you can get done with very trivial uh, 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 learning. And, and that was one of the reasons that my PhD, I focused on system, uh, system engineering. So I had been a system administrator and I understood there were so many good solutions out there. And there are so many people that were just, they were looking for this one magic solution. They weren't trying to combine all the good ideas that were already out there. And so my PhD was about basically how do you combine the good ideas and keep them from interfering with each other too much? Um, so that's similar to what I described as Rod's uh, breakthrough, but Rod um, was making it unnecessarily difficult to, to do the engineering. He, you know, he was kind of trying to hide it. And, and uh, so I, I, I brought it forward and my PhD was basically it was at the same time as the Agile Revolution. I was going to the same meetings and hearing the same talks. And so it was basically the Agile Revolution only in robotics. And, and just saying, like, when you're building a robot, then, then what's different? You know, and, and how is this different from object-oriented design in general? You know, how do, how do you actually, uh, when you can get the AI to do some of the work for you? Um, so you, you both want the AI to do the work while you're developing the system. And then you also want to have a system that is sort of AI that's running. I was doing real-time human-like intelligence. And actually, my PhD mostly got picked up in the games industry, which I didn't even know for years. I, I, I saw it from uh, Googling that, uh, that, that, that some, some uh, game middleware companies had ripped off uh, paragraphs out of, my, out of my abstract that the MIT put on for all their, their PhD students. But I didn't realize that like, the whole behavior tree thing was very, very much influenced by, by my thesis and, and, and uh, some of the, the subsequent work. So, so the, um, so it makes sense. Games were a lot easier to, you know, they don't fall over, they don't short out. <laughs> so they don't have the same problems of robots. Um, although they have different problems, they're not as much like the real world. You've got, you know, the graphics guys don't want to give you any cycles, you know, they have other problems. But anyway, the, um, I think I've digressed a little bit. I, my point is that I would, I had at, at Edinburgh, at Edinburgh, sorry, at Bath, you know, I was at Bath for 17 years. And it was a really good uh, place for people that were doing um, formal computer science and really understood theory of computation and also were very good at applied. They were very, we had a great, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call that, internship program. So people that could really, really program and could really, really understand sort of the logic and, and coherence of AI. But we didn't do that much. I mean, again, I had occasionally had PhDs, not PhDs, dissertation students that did uh, that did machine learning. I had, I actually had one, I think I really only had one student, a PhD that was really full on 
machine learning for for uh, for for robot uh, control actually for for like you know gripping control and stuff it was brilliant and co-supervised with somebody who knew more about it than I did. Um, but I mean it's about the learning part. But a lot of my students, like me, had used you know just off the shelf things, but used it better to to achieve a particular task. And uh, so I think there's a lot of the the you know it's it's just like the rest of the world that you can specialize if you're really gonna you know if you want to do data science or something then it's useful to be able to at least understand what's going on with the equations have some kind of a formal mathematical background but um, you don't have to innovate at everything you could be you can bring really important and useful things uh, to the table if you understand like I did systems integration. Other people are understanding, uh, you know, more human processes like human, you know, uh, like uh, how do you do human resources or whatever, you know. So there's so many, you know, how do you do legislation? You know, there's a lot of people that are making contributions in AI now who are only lawyers. And hopefully, I mean, like some of them, like Michael Veal, have actually gone out and got, you know, like he and I are like two of the people that really have degrees from totally different (laughs) sides of the problem. And I think that does help us. But there's still, there's been very important contributions made, obviously, by people who were specialists as well. And, and I think there's, there, there, there is room for a broad church, but you won't necessarily get, I'll have the a good fortune to get, you know, as I said, I got accepted into MIT with, you know, mediocre grades from a great school at Chicago and then, then good grades, not, 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 I, not actually even the top of my class grades at Edinburgh, but with supervisors saying, yeah, this is the kind of thing that, that, that you guys want. And, and again, Edinburgh was well enough known for its AI that the people at MIT trusted it. So there is something about, um, you know, there's a network effect there that, that, that and it wasn't that I come from a very small town in the Midwest. I did not come from a family of academics. So I'm not saying that every stage has to be like that, but it helps. It, it is worth doing the extra work uh, if you can. Uh, and and um, of being someplace that people might have heard of because you, you learn more, <laughs> you know, if, if it's a better place. That, you know, so that, and that was why my grades weren't good. I took all the graduate classes I could take. I just wanted to know, and I didn't care about my grades. Um, but the, the uh, if I, so yeah, I, I don't know. If, sorry, I've, I've, brought, I've now branched into uh, education strategies. But, but yeah, in terms of discipline, I guess you got the point. I did, I did talk about that quite a bit. I think our listeners are definitely pretty interested in some of those educational aspects of things. And I did find the the range of perspectives you brought sort of during your PhD, the object-oriented design approach you took to things rather interesting. I do think I want to shift, though, to sort of how you section things off in your description of your own research. So um, what I'm thinking about now is sort of your understanding and study of cognition more broadly. And where I'd love to start with this is in the research you sort of relay in this section, it's super interesting, I think, that you've sort of brought together a study of natural intelligence as well, and really studies of animals, of primates. But maybe to begin, I'd love to start with how you think about and approach a definition of intelligence more broadly. <laughs> yes, I do it more broadly. <laughs> so, so basically... Uh... I don't think definitions, in fact, what, what, when I was an uh, undergraduate, we were taught this. Again, I went to a good place. They touched it on it right. And they said, um, people aren't going to agree on, on definitions. And if people get you fighting about definitions, everybody there is losing. It's just a waste of time. So do not fight about definitions. However, having said that, definitions are very important 
for the purpose of a particular document. And so you just choose one. You don't say this is the right one, but you choose one you're going to use um, where there is ambiguity so that people are clear about it. And then you lay that out at the beginning of the paper. So um, I have found for the problem of uh, regulation, which is the main place where I write, lay out these definitions, that it's best to work with the definition actually I learned as a behavioral scientist at Chicago and also as an AI person at, at, at Edinburgh, which was that um, you know, intelligence is doing the right thing at the right time, basically. I mean, there were, you know, there, you can take a whole lot of other, uh, but I, I like that because it's, a, it's clean, it's clear, it's a transformation of information. That is a form of computation. And that shows you why things like computer science, you know, the, the escalation of the limits of what can be computed and the costs associated with that computation are so integral to, to um, what you can do in intelligence and, and where you're going to hit uh, uh, hard limits. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, 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 I use that definition because all the really interesting questions, you know, like everybody wants to know, like, what, what is consciousness? And, and what, you know, does my sister see the same color as I do, you know, or whatever in the sky, you know, all those kinds of questions. If you just bundle those all up in one word, then you can't say how important to, uh, to, to consciousness is intelligence, right? Or what part of uh, the over, overall capacity of an organism to adjust its behavior is a consequence of having something like consciousness, right? Having, for example, episodic memory, right? Um, so you want to be able to take those pieces apart, whether or not, you know, whichever label you happen to choose to apply to them. And then uh, when I was uh, getting, so while I was at MIT, I got into the context of, as I mentioned, this robot that was just incredibly, insanely complicated and non-functional for the whole time I was on it, a uh, human-shaped robot. And people felt moral obligation to that robot, even though it didn't work, even though it wasn't plugged in. Whereas there were other working robots around the place that nobody said that about, you know. And so as I started trying to talk to people about what they thought was going on, and as I started trying to write about this, I eventually, you know, looked it up in the Stanford Encyclopedia and found out that, that the term for something that you owe a moral obligation to is moral patient. And the term for someone who has moral obligations is a moral agent. And so now we can ask the really interesting questions like, to what extent is consciousness a part of moral patiency or to what extent is intelligence a part of moral agency, for example, right? And I think those are, those are questions that are worth, in fact, I'm writing a book uh, about this stuff. Um, I, th I think those questions are, um, again, it's not like you're going to come up with a single answer because we don't even have an agreed definition, but you can choose a definition and then communicate about things that really matter, like helping people understand, yes, you're having a conversation with something that has artificial intelligence. It's not, um, it's not making overall coherent sense because that's, it's not based on an agent that has a goal and a history. It's rather um, you're just, you're just sort of uh, accessing the internet, you know, you're accessing stuff that people have, not the whole internet, just the stuff people have already written down, like probably Wikipedia, you know, so you're accessing the information people have written down through this really interesting interface. And, you know, it can be, it can be a little proactive if you want, we can make it more proactive, we can have it ask you questions, right? But it doesn't have the kind of motivation system that an animal does. So, yeah, so going back to that's part of why I, I spent a lot of time looking at monkeys was because um, 
I, I, you know, you learn a lot if, if you're a psych undergraduate about rats, right? So then you realize that a lot of the things that we think are a part of like oh, some uniquely human thing is actually a shared experience with a rat. And, and so I, I thought that the, the non-human primates were the closest thing to us without language and that language makes everything explode. So I wanted to understand, like in, in, in a computer terms, I wanted to understand sort of the hardware and the OS before I start looking at all the software. Um, it just made sense to me. And so I did do that. I did that until basically a funder pushed me the way I had always expected to finish my career, which pushed me into looking at humans again. I think the non and proto linguistic aspects of intelligence, that component of your study is really interesting, just because I think in particular, many of the debates that are going on today about quote unquote, understanding and large language models, what that means, what in the world is going on inside them. Um, you have the open AI people and their ilk who are like, text is a far more complete description of the human experience than people had imagined. And they have a case to make for that of a sort, but it does feel like there is so much missing from that picture. And I thought it was very interesting that in your description of the Edinburgh Masters, you mentioned music as one of the sort of disciplines you might consider, because I think to me that represents a very different type of knowing and learning and engaging with the world that is non-linguistic. And so I'm curious how you come at some of these more contemporary questions from your perspective. Oh, that's a really fun, uh, well, it's, I'm glad that you brought up the music thing because I hadn't really thought about that. It might be part of the why Edinburgh wasn't quite as crazy as the rest of the world. <laughs> but um, the, uh, yeah, because, you know, there was a lot of really smart people working on making systems that were like humans in terms of, you know, I did, my master's project was called the reactive accompanist. So I tried to use Brooks-like stuff not to create, not to create, you know, totally creatively, but rather to, 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 to like sort of try to, like when you, when you hear a song, you don't really know it, but you've got a guitar and you're trying to play along with it. So I was trying to replicate that little part of a musician's experience, which it is somewhat creative, right? It's just a piece of it, but you're drawing out of some expertise you have, like, and, and so you put into it, like, what are the chords? I, mine only knew major and minor chords. And then, like I said, there's a little tiny neural network that's just keeping track of what it's heard. And then trying to notice when, you know, trying to understand the rhythm. So when is it likely to have a transition? Because that matters a lot. Um, and then um, and then at the beginning of the transition, trying to update what's the next likely chord. And it didn't know music theory. So it made mistakes that like no human would ever make, like not knowing what the last chord is because there's only one note. So it really sounded dumb because it, you'd sort of think it was getting and then the last note would be, the last chord would be almost random, right? So having that experience may help a lot better. It is quite similar to you have this feeling with uh, ChatGPT or whatever that knows what's going on. And then it says something completely random. And the point is, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the whole structure. It doesn't have the, I mean, it has access to all of culture, but not in any connected way. There's nothing that's, that there, it doesn't have a lived experience. It doesn't have, uh, you know, with, with, when we were working on that robot project, why were we building this ridiculous robot? There was a theory by, uh, um, uh, Mark Johnson, and I forgot the other guy's really smart too, and I'm embarrassed. Lakoff, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson had this theory of, of intelligence that we can't under, you know, you, you only experience life once and you couldn't really understand it without experiencing it. 
So how do we reason about our lives? And okay, well, a lot of people don't, they, they make bad decisions, right? But, but, the, but what we do is we use metaphors. And so we have, we have other things that we do experience like a path you know, that you have to get from one place to another. And then you use the path as a metaphor to understand you know, career and life and things like that, that you aren't, you're only going to get one shot at. So you, need, you, know, you can't just try a bunch of different things. And so, um, so we thought, oh, yeah, maybe if we had a robot, then, then AI language would go further. Remember I mentioned that COG was, a, the, the robot's name was COG, that COG was a, was a language project, really. So the idea was like, well, you know, robot cares about left and right and up and down and, and uh, back and forward. And well, if it can move, it cares about back and forward, right? <laughs> but, but it, um, and so therefore it would be easier to ground uh, the, the, the semantics in, in, in a way that would be relevant to human. So I think, yeah, it, the, when people create, you know, I, I was actually one of the people that was involved in that wonderful uh, experiment that Anna Darnhouse is the, the main person I know that was involved in it, but there were some other people in California that got some credit too. <laughs> but anyway, the, the wonderful experiment of taking Dennett's writing and then also asking Dennett questions and asking ChatGPT questions when it had been trained, not, not ChatGPT, just GPT-3, I think, when it had been trained on Dennett's corpus. And I was one of the people that, that was a chance of recognizing, and I know Dennett, you know, I've been to his house and we're friends, and I still was at chance. Uh, it wasn't that, some of them were obviously wrong, right? You know, like they, they were just, you know, reproducing the past. But I didn't know him that well in the present. I haven't been, you know, hanging out with him in the last decade. And so I couldn't discriminate. Like, I, I was probably sometimes choosing the ones that were more like the Dennett I knew in the 90s <laughs> than, than the present Dennett, right? So, so anyway, um, so having said that, so even though I can't tell the difference uh, when I'm writing to it, I can tell you that we had a conversation about this, uh, like, last week. Uh, there was, like, me and a couple of my friends and... Uh, and done it and a, and a journalist and we were having a wonderful time and it was nothing like you know like reading the answers to some questions right you know you're 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 when you see an old friend that is just different and and i think that what people need to understand and will i think hopefully come to understand uh well we'll get to the hope in a minute but um hopefully they'll understand that a, a portrait of yourself that's made through taking your collected writings and putting it into a really pretty simple algorithm. There is not some magic consciousness part of the network that's, that's been coordinating information and suddenly turned into an ape. That's not what's happening. It really is about just trying to find the regularities and rhythms, just like my music thing, of like how, how do you talk and how do you navigate an information space. And so it's a portrait and it's no more you than the painting on the wall. And I think at some point there were probably some people that thought, in fact, I know people were freaked out by photographs. You can go to, uh, what is it called? I forget. One of the famous French ones, the one that with the big clock of your, that, that Oh yeah. Used. I can't remember. Is that exactly. I, I can't remember. Sorry. Everybody's laughing at us. But anyway, so the, the um, they have a, a room of photographs there and a lot of the early photographs, uh, are of like naked women with their eyes covered, covering their own eyes. Why? Because people couldn't believe that the photo wasn't looking at them. They didn't have an experience of being around photographs and they just, they, they felt uncomfortable observing the woman's body while she was looking at them. Right. And so in the 19th century, that's what she did. And so I think, I feel like we're at that same stage right now with ChatGPT, 
but we'll be in the stage where people throw these pictures up all over the place <laughs> yeah, and won't worry about it that much. Maybe they should worry about it a little more. <laughs> but it's not because the picture itself is looking at you. It's more about like, you know, what is this saying about your taste or something? Um, but, uh, you know, so the um, I, that that's where I think we are right now. That makes a lot of sense to me. It is interesting just because, yes, whatever is going on inside these systems and people have a range of opinions and I'm very sympathetic to your viewpoint, whatever many different people will think. It is true that we just haven't been around systems that are capable of producing reams of text that seem plausible before. And so, yeah, there is this question, well, the only thing I've seen before that does something like this is a human being. Therefore, you might make this cognitive leap to, well, there must be something going on inside it. Well, I think, I mean, so this also reminds me of one of my favorite metaphors I've been using for a long time, but I'll use it again. The original stop action of King Kong, you know, like people were passing out. They were so terrified of this gorilla, right? They also did that. They passed out about like the trains that were coming at you. So there were early movies were like, you know, or, or, or early horror films, you know, like being taken in the train coming right at you. And nobody had experienced that before, right? But the point is that now even little children, you know, will have like a, a, a monster movie on TV and not be afraid of it and, and much more realistic monsters than that King Kong. And, you know, now it's hard to believe anyone could be afraid of something that's so obviously claymation, but it wasn't obviously claymation then. And so I hope that um, we will not only get better at saying, oh, look, it's claymation, like chat GPT, ha, 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 look at those gaps, but that that our sophistication as we come to better understand just the, the shallowness of what you can construct with a neural network and a bunch of language um, will make it so that we similarly also will no longer pass out, even when we are in the movies, they're like the hyper 3D, you know, super photorealistic uh, animation, blah, 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 right? That, that, so when we do have AI that, that, that looks just exactly like a person and can pass a Turing test or whatever, um, it, that we still will retain our understanding that it's not an animal. It's not experiencing animal-like phenomenology. That we, if, if we think that because of commonality, we owe something to something, that, that we have more commonality with fruit flies than we're going to have with, with something that's like this large thing sitting on a, on a server somewhere that doesn't have anything like our sensory experience and also doesn't have anything like our, mora- our mortality or whatever. Like all the, all the, all the pieces that, um, that we base our uh, affiliation and our, um, I mean, you may want to spend time just like some people want to sit around and just listen to the same record over and over, right? You may want to spend all your time learning from an AI system, but in terms that you would, shouldn't therefore feel moral obligation to your particular instance of it. You need to recognize that you're talking to like something that's just a tendril of a giant thing that's owned by a corporation. Or even if we managed to make it state-owned or whatever the liberal fantasy of it, you know, like Wikipedia, you know, you know, absolutely, I love Wikipedia, right? I'm not, I'm not running down Wikipedia at all. But the point is that it's, it's, it's a, it's a network. It's not that there's um, one entity that we have obligations. I think we do it as a, as a planet have an obligation about this uh, public good that we've constructed um, to, to try to keep it resilient and robust. Um, but it's not like there's some instance of something human-like that we need to we need to be taking care of, right? That's just not how it works. And so AI is like that. AI is much more in you know, 
it, in, our, in our dreams, AI would be like Wikipedia. <laughs> in, in practice, AI is a fraction of you know Google and Microsoft and these companies that are sometimes great. They do provide fantastic services and sometimes unbelievably immoral. I mean, I'm really angry. And a lot of uh, us in Europe now are really angry at the betrayal that you know, we said we've known these companies for a while as if you can know a company, but we knew the people that made them up and we thought we knew the company. And then they were lying. They were flat out lying in testimony. And, and journalists had to find out what we academics have been covering for, which we not not intentionally. We hadn't known. Right. So so these organizations that, that with which we are all enamored and on which we're all dependent are not trustworthy. And and uh, and and the AI is a fraction of them. Right. It's, it's just a small fraction. And maybe it'll be a large fraction of some companies, you know, that isn't necessarily going to be. Uh, well, like I said, OpenAI is, uh, um, well, it's about all they do, right? But arguably, OpenAI is uh, not an autonomous company. It just it just plays one on TV. <laughs> it, no, it just plays one under the law uh, for, for some kind of liability reason but or, 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 or uh, other uh, financial reason. But basically, it's an extension of Microsoft. Um, and uh, so I think that... Uh, there are definitely people. So now, oh, I want to get back to that hope thing, right? When I say hopefully, um, there's some things we can understand, uh, and you know, and, and and equally complicated things we have a lot more trouble understanding. And that's because, again, evolution and culture and everything else has programmed us to really care. And natural language is one of those things. So maybe we'll never understand uh, spoken language as well as we can understand, you know, like I said, portraits. Right. Um, that is possible, at least at the gut level. We may just feel like I have a couple of pepper robots. You can see them over there. Um, you know, I know everything about, you know, well, maybe not everything about how they work, but I know a lot about how they work. I know. And, and yet I cannot help but feeling emotionally affected by them. You know, they are built to do that. They they the, the mo- you know, they they spend a lot of money and time making something that triggers like some kind of, you know, maternal, you know, like, oh, it's cute, you know, whatever. You feel affiliation for these robots, and um, and no amount of skepticism or anything else is going to like break that experience. And I've seen them opened. I've seen them. I, I've been there where people were building and programming them. You know, I I understand exactly how they work. Uh, like, well, like I said, not in detail, but at, at the at level of abstraction, I and I know that you know I can back them up or whatever. I don't have. But and I don't and I don't believe I don't worry about like you know I don't secretly lay at night worrying about the robots sitting in my office I forget about them most of the time. <laughs> but but my point is that while they're moving, you're still having that phenomenological experience. And this again is sort of like um, if you're watching a movie, you will cry, right? And and uh, well, depending on who you are and which movie you're watching, <laughs> you will cry or your hearts will will speed up or what you know. The the um, but intellectually you know that that uh, this is not real life. But while you're immersed in it, it's as if for your conscious experience of it that it's real life. And so I hope that we can get to the same stage with AI that people will get a better understanding. In fact, I keep talking to people about what can we do to to accelerate um, the transparency. But unfortunately, a lot of people they don't want to know this. Like a lot of the people building it. Also, are hoping that they've they, if they just add one more layer on it, it'll magically turn into a person or something. It's like no, you have to be an ape to be a person. Right? It's not at least to be a human, 
right? I mean, a legal person, yes, there's there's corporations that have been assigned this, and like this goes back to definitions again. But but you're not going to have the same kind of experience. Um, well, again, like a lot of people think that, I mean, that's that kind of experience with avatars or, or with listening to music. A lot of people are are absolutely in love with uh, characters or movie actors they've never met. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, then a lot of people are, are completely convinced their doorknobs understand them, you know, like not as many as stars thing. But, uh, so you will have a lot of differences of opinion about this, but there's a fact of the matter about what, what generates health, you know, and what generates babies and, you know, things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do really sympathize with that viewpoint. And I feel like I keep coming back to the music question, but it started to kind of form in my mind as a kind of analogy for thinking about this, because I think that in in some ways, like I, I've started to think about these language models, these systems as, you know, you can you can be a pretty good violinist and like kind of brute force your way through the Sibelius concerto. But I think that actually being able to play it and communicate the you know what Sibelius was actually trying to compress into this you know the his failure as a violinist the kind of like gestalt of like a frozen tundra you kind of get when listening to it sometimes that's totally different from just playing you know each note until you get to the end of the thing even if you kind of do it right and I think this analogy breaks in lots of ways but I, I feel like I've started to sometimes think of a model as you know the the pretty good violinist who is just kind of like brute forcing his way through the piece but not actually communicating what it has to say. I, I can I can certainly tell you as the uh, high school autistic percussionist that was sitting there with the cymbals trying to count uh, the right number of measures until you go crash and then like sticking it in with no understanding of what was actually the point when the crash should come, which if I actually listened to the music, I could have known. But for whatever reason, we were taught the skill of reading the music, not the skill of like listening for the symbol crash. Um, so the, the, uh, that yes, you know, <laughs> I get, I get your metaphor there. Um, Although what I just said was, is you know, so there's this orchestra constructed a bunch of people. Maybe they they hate the music they're playing, like they were they were into Mozart, and now they're having to play Shostakovich, and they don't want to be there. And yet they can do a wonderful job of expressing something, like some some combination of the composer and the conductor and the producer and the audience. You know, somehow there is something that is wonderful out of that. And I guess that's. Uh, so some people I know are also trying to work on like that maybe we can have AI and make the whole world conscious or something. And uh, I don't think that's <laughs> a great idea, uh, a great way to think about how, how these systems will run or, or in fact, a stable economy. You don't want to have a monopoly on that kind of thing. Um, but I do think that there's a sense in which we can look at when we come up with ecological regulations or whatever, like when we do, we've just had a UN agreement if we manage to enforce it on, on how we treat the oceans, you can kind of think of it that way. And then in that case, the technology is facilitating the human organizations to, in being something like the consciousness of the planet, right? But, I, but it's not, it's not the, again, it's not the machine itself. It, it, it is the, the agency is being re, uh, realized through the desires of the culture that built the machine, that the machine is an artifact of. Right. So I, I think it's much, much, much more appropriate to think of all, all of our technology as an extension of our own agency. Right. And so what you own yourself is an extension of your agency. 
hopefully, again, this gets uh, gets fraught when you have a mobile phone and who knows how many other people are are acting upon you through it, right? Because of smartphones. But um, but generally speaking, you know, if you're talking about a pencil or something, then I am expressing my agency when I whack something with it or write something with it or whatever. And and for a corporation or a government, then these are entities that can also express their agency. They are also intelligent entities, and it's, it's, it's useful and interesting to think about it that way. But the machine itself, when you think of the machine itself, well, it is an agency, right? It is, it is acting. But it, it cannot be the responsible agency with respect to human uh, accountability because we cannot hold a machine to account. It, it, none of the penalties of the law that were developed for, for highly social apes are going to apply to, to a machine. So it doesn't, there's no coherent sense in which we can say that the machine itself is responsible. Um, and, and that's the, we can say it was a causal factor, but we can't, we can't hold it like morally responsible. Um, so I guess I was agreeing with you, but, and I went on another tangent. Is that okay? I think this is actually a perfect segue into some of these issues, because I think your ethics and policy work really does speak to some of these questions. And you have a, a through line kind of going way back in your work from your 2010 paper, Robots Should Be Slaves, kind of coming against this idea that we should treat artificial agents as moral patients or conceptualize them as such or build systems that could possibly mean moral patients. And um, I think you just gave kind of a great description of review on that. And one particular question I have is there are a lot of people who, and we kind of went over this a little bit earlier, but they think that once you reach a certain level of capability in your AI system, then it is bound to be a moral patient or there has to be something going on in there. And I think that there is a bit of a mistake in that those things need to be disentangled a bit. But if we do at least partially sympathize with that viewpoint, then would the stance we shouldn't develop things that are moral patients that imply a sort of limit on the capabilities we are willing to confer on or build into these. Okay. That's a great question. Um, and so let's, let's go back a little bit for, for any uh, listeners who haven't uh, 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 seen this from the beginning. Um, the, the, so the robots should be slaves. Actually the tagline that was in there that I reused a lot of times is that we're obliged uh to build AI, we're not obliged to, right? It doesn't make sense to build, uh, in fact, I think it may go even back further than that in 2010. It may go back to uh, my Humanoid Agent Builders League 2001 HAL uh, paper. But anyway, this, this obligation uh, not to uh, be obliged to AI. I actually have, uh, and so that's that, that's that, that's why thus the robots should be slaves. The whole point was like, we've agreed that no one should own a human. So we shouldn't want the stuff that we know we will own and that we know will be products to be human because we don't want it to suffer enslavement, right? You know, the humans are not allowed to suffer enslavement, but, but lots of devices are owned and it doesn't matter, right? So that was the idea. And unfortunately, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make as much sense in the current context because now we wouldn't try to separate the human experience of slavery from, from in fact, everyone's trying to go in and change the engineering uh, textbooks that talked about master-slave, you know, uh, agnostically. Um, but anyway, so the, um, the point is, I was just trying to take, it's, it's a normal thing they teach you in computer science school, which is to take this extreme limit case. So even if it were possible, 
you you shouldn't want that. So could you just let go of this theory? And, you know, that was what I was trying to say. Unfortunately, that, that has led people to, a lot of people are not good at what we computer scientists call as conditionals. So, you know, if X, then Y, you know, if, if you're in outer space, then you will uh, suffocate. Okay. Then um, that doesn't mean we're in outer space. I don't believe we're in outer space. I just know that we will suffocate. Right. And the fact that I know that we, we, we shouldn't uh, want to own uh, things that could be people does not mean that I think we could build something that would be people. Right. I, I, we do have uh, one means to do that, which is cloning. And uh, you could say, well, we'll let the clone be free or whatever. But at least in Europe, and I think most, I think it might be global, but certainly in the EU, it is illegal to clone humans because no one should be sort of called to be someone else. You know, okay, so twins happen, but they're not supposed to be versions of each other. They still have all the issues they have, but but they weren't they weren't born to be twins, right? But but um, but clones that that you were brought into existence to be like you know you know someone's lover or whatever like that's just sick you know and and uh, and we don't want to have people suffer that they will I'm sure that we'll experience that it'll be one of those laws that gets broken sometimes but I think it will also be a norm that we aren't going to accept that as 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 a as good behavior by a scientist or a medical doctor or whatever so. Um, so anyway, the point is, that's the only way that you make people is by cloning them. And, uh, and I think we have a lot more ethical and moral issues to concern about, like what we might do in terms of hacking people, like bioextensions, things like that. But I, we're not going to get, to, you know, the, all, all the things that people want to do, like whole brain uploading and things like this, are, are not computationally tractable. There aren't things that are really actually going to work. And again, remember the twins, they're exactly like each other, uh, at least at the, at, the, at the DNA, almost exactly at the same at the DNA level. They're not the same people, right? You just, you're not going to make a, a perfect copy of yourself. And, and I don't, um, I mean, people will, will try, I mean, for, for decades, people have been willing to charge you, you know, millions of rubles to, uh, <laughs> to, to make a copy. But it isn't, you know, I, and I got bad news about cryogenics too, you know, like, but so this goes back to the thing. People are so desperate to avoid life. Some pe- I mean, life, sorry, death. Some people want to avoid life and they die, but some people want to avoid death, and you can't do that, right? And and but the, they will believe that they have. They want to believe they have. And in some ways, that you know, there, some people use the power of writing a will to continue bullying, even domestic abuse and things after in the afterlife, right? To to continue to assert their will. Um, but they can't enjoy that. Trust me, they're not there. They only enjoyed it while they were writing the will, and like you know, maybe they laid awake nights thinking how clever they'd been. But but they didn't. It's not something that happens after after the death. Um, so so yeah, the the thread. I I don't know if that made it any clearer, but I, I but I think as you said, the other things we've been saying are very clear. You're not going to get a person this way. You are going to get really interesting uh, augmentations of sort of basically libraries. Right. So so it is super cool that we have these these really great interfaces into um our own culture. But if we do not value and treasure the each other, um you don't just wind up with wars and genocides and things like that, but you also we all become less secure. We we, we have the you know the poison planet and all that. So we really need to I, I do think some of it is escapism that people really, you know, not just escaping from death, but thinking that they'll somehow escape from from the fact 
that we need to cooperate with 8 billion other people to, to, to save the climate to the extent that we can uh, and, to, and to, to deal with that life uh, to the extent that we can't. Um, people are terrified of that for a good reason. It's incredibly scary, but, but it's not helpful to, <laughs> to think that you can have an escapist fantasy world and, and, and not have to deal with that. Sure. Um, while we still have a few minutes, I would love to discuss some of your thoughts on the various moves towards regulation we started to see in the past few years. And so notably, of course, there is the EU AI Act. China has sort of gone after a really interesting set of what some people will label regulatory experiments in algorithmic governance, which I think is just a really fascinating thing to watch. And so I think there are lots of common criticisms of AI regulation today, the classic, like, you know, all bark, no bite kind of criticism, which I find just like doesn't really kind of think about the realities of regulation. Earlier, you were talking about the point of definitions and how they might be useful in regulation. I had a conversation with one of the authors of the Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights recently, and I think he adopted the stance of like strategic ambiguity when it comes to definitions and that sort of being um, a little bit of a better strategy. But I'd, I'd love to get sort of your broad level thoughts, since we don't have too much time to go into details on them, on the various sorts of regulation we're seeing right now, what you find useful in them, what we might be missing. A great, great set of questions. And you're right, we'll have to go probably another 10 minutes on this, but I think it's probably worth it. The, the China stuff is fascinating. Um, and uh, and the American stuff is, I don't know, I have to say less so. <laughs> so so the, uh, the all bark and no bite thing, um, well, initially we came up, so we, we actually had the first, we, the British, I'm sitting in Berlin right now, but when I, I have a British passport as well as an American passport. And, and we, the British, uh, came up with the first national level so- soft law in what, 2010? To, I think we wrote it in 2010 and it got published in 2011. Um, and that was called the, uh, the, the principles of robotics. They were the, and, um, and if you look at the OECD principles, they're remarkably similar. <laughs> Guess who helped advise on them? Um, but anyway, the, uh, the, the thing is that the, a lot of people, there was a lot of principles that came out. People are still producing principles. They're like, oh, this is just a waste of time. Well, it isn't. Actually, if you look at the OECD, a lot of the current privacy law derives from principles that the OECD, and not just privacy, like oh, it's not just digital. This is something they routinely do. So they get together, they come to some kind of agreement. It is hard. It is hard to come up with these kinds of documents. But that's actually some kind of work. And then people start writing legislation um, based on that because they've got now they've got a set of concepts in some terms, and you can at least reference the definitions that are in those documents, right? The UNESCO has a version of this now for, for uh, AI ethics. Um, you know, before that, the IEEE put together like this ridiculously large document, but still a huge amount of work, very, very uh, inclusive, uh, you know, process and things like that. And again, the, I was just at a UNESCO event that was part of their, um, the event itself was part of their crowdsourcing commentary and informing and their, and their consultations following the release of, of like one of the, the, I think the second draft of their, um, the UNESCO, the U, UNESCO um, Internet Regulation uh, dra- uh, Draft. Um, so when we come together and, and we come up with these kinds of documents, then you go back to the sovereign nations and you make the laws 
to to uh, to uphold them, and that's very cool. So then the interesting problem is, uh, so, so the U.S. sort of doesn't want that, and so so they have they so when you when you have like after all this effort and like the IEEE is very U.S. dominated, you know, although like I said, it was a pretty inclusive document. Um, that that you still are writing at this point, you know, like whatever it, it, the Bill of Rights is actually a thing in the Constitution that that has teeth. The the AI yeah. Bill of Rights is not right. It, it even sounds wrong. It sounds like you're, you're protecting AI, right? You know, it's it's not it's not it doesn't. Um, so so at this point, the U.S. should catch up, but but unfortunately, they are terrified because it's such a big part of their uh, economy. Our economy again. I can I can flip hats, uh, and and the West Coast is just like they don't understand what it is to be human. They don't understand what regulation and governance are about, and they're not getting. I mean, you, you talk to someone from a normal industry like automotive, you know, medical devices, uh, petrochemical. They have no. Okay, sorry, I just saw the connect. If you talk to you know petrochemical, automotive. Uh, they 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 don't think the GDPR is a big deal at all. They have to comply to that because they have data. But that's like the that's one of the most minor requirements, you know. And people make a big fuss about it, but it's actually they're like, oh yeah, no, this is fine, <laughs> you know. And and they do that stuff, and they have transparency in their systems because they get inspected. They are regulated, and that's why their sectors are as safe as they are. Which is not to say perfectly safe. I, I could think of some things that petrochemical. <laughs> Uh, my, 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 you know, some petrochemical issues, but I, but the point is that that uh, that still, this is this is how we go forward. We use government as a coordination device. It is something that enhances it enhances innovation, right? Being well regulated, having not having monopolies, which actually slow things down. They tend to want to keep the power they have, right? And also they're just large, and there's all kinds of reasons that monopolies slow things down. So, so regulation actually benefits innovation, um, but it does depend on enforcement. And so a lot of, you said, oh, the AI Act, and everybody's making a big fuss about the AI. And I love the AI Act. I think it's a really nice piece of legislation. But most of the stuff that I would I was worrying about, like how are we going to deal with these large companies that are producing the AI, um, and also things like privacy, uh, right to explanation, those things are in the Digital Services Act and the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, right? So those are the places that we're really looking now and say, how is this going to be enforced? And the AI Act around which there's so much song and dance and everybody, it's almost like a distractor, you know, all it comes down to is this fairly minimal thing, which is to say, look, if you let uh, software take a decision, right? Remember my, my basic definition back there? So if, if something happens in the world as a consequence of the software, then people better be able to make sure that that was done well. Right, so you have to be able to demonstrate due diligence. If you have a product, um, you've got to know if the product does something wrong. Is that because you had a failure, like you know, like when there's a recall for brakes or something? Was it a failure in your uh, system, or was it the owner operator's fault? Did they deliberately do something, or did some hacker come in? If you have a digital system, it could have been some third party. Nobody should release a product, especially one that could like you know crash a car. Or, or alter a kid's chance of going to school, no one should release such a product unless they can answer those questions. And people in software industry are not used to being under that responsibility, but they should because they're affecting life outcomes. If you're only making toys, you have less obligations. The, you, the, the EU doesn't expect that you know, 90% of people building AI, 
the only obligation they'll have is to make sure people know that it's an AI system. And I hope that that extends to make knowing that, that it's not a person, they don't have obligations to it and things like that. Um, but, but there's like, and there's a little bit of AI that may or may not get excluded from, from Europe, like um, social credit scoring and, uh, you know, generally tracking people everywhere they are, other than the UK is already doing that. <laughs> and like, um, but, uh, but the, uh, but the, the main thing that the AI Act is about is like, if you fail to get a loan, uh, maybe you won't ever fully understand why that is. But if there was enough people that something weird was going on, it would be relatively easy to do a class action suit and go figure out what's going on. Um, I, I don't even know if we have class action suits here, but, but you get what I'm saying. We certainly do have these these initiatives that go through and say, uh, you know, something is really wrong with the the welfare system for immigrant children in, in the Netherlands. You know, something is really wrong with uh, the set of, uh, uh, so I don't know if you know about this. So the, the, the Netherlands had this situation where parents were accused of, of, of lying, basically, and they got all their rights and their family taken away and they're bankrupt and their suicides and jailings and stuff. And it wasn't their fault. It was this huge scandal. And unlike a lot of uh, things that happen in America, the, the government resigned because of that. You know, wow. that you're just like, this is our fault. And that's what you need to understand. Someone is responsible. And since that was a government AI system, the government was responsible for it. All right. So we need to accept responsibility for the systems we build, whether you want to call them intelligent or not. The point is that decisions were being taken by a system that not, had not been adequately designed. And there was not adequate recourse that people couldn't come and say, look, this isn't true. You know, go and check. Right. If it's important, there's got to be a way to go and check. And as someone in the UK with their post offices, but I won't, I, I won't burn any more time on this, on these examples. Sure. Yeah. The, the responsibility in recourse is really interesting. And I think that a lot of people might have in mind the example where an Arizona, um, one Uber self-driving vehicle, I think ran into a pedestrian and there were some like obvious problems with its vision system and the classification going on. But ultimately Uber did not take any responsibility. It was the driver who had been put there who admittedly, I think was on their phone for some part of it, but still a lot of the problems were in the self-driving car system. And I think that humans are kind of known to not do well with things that are partially automated versus fully automated or not at all. And that seems like something Uber should have taken into account in designing how they were going to go about this. Okay, let's take this a little slightly different direction. So sure. I love that, that example. Um, uh, so what did the system, again, demonstrating that if you're in the automotive industry, you do have uh, you do have all this information. So you get like Google and Microsoft. Well, not Microsoft, actually. They're, not, they're being pretty good about this right now. But say, oh, you can't possibly know how this system works. You know, we'll never know. That we know what... Uh, the robot, the, the the car robot thing, thought it saw. So it was four in the morning on a highway, right? I've, I've been, I've, I've crossed this highway, right? It's four in the morning on a highway, a homeless person with ragged clothes pushed her bicycle across the highway. So the vision system initially saw the flapping clothes and thought it was paper tumbling across the highway. Then it saw the bicycle and decided that it was a, a cyclist. Normally cyclists would be going in the same direction as, as traffic and they wouldn't be crossing, right? And so by the time it figured out that it had no idea what was going on, there was only half a second. The woman who was supposed to be at the wheel was not, it was four in the morning, she was looking at her phone, right? So I I can understand why she may have been somewhat culpable for, for not having done her job. 
Although I agree with you that that job was like impossible. And maybe that's another thing that we could be suing Uber about. But, um, but we do know exactly what happened. And in fact, a human might easily have made that same, you know, a human driving at that hour might also have crashed into her, you know, especially if they're a little drunk or something, right? Because it's just not a good thing to be doing at that place, you know, with cars going that speed, right? But the, um, but, but yes, I think it's weird that the, and I, I guess I would like to know more from, from lawyers. I don't understand how the company wasn't seen as uh, responsible. Uh, but I do see that, like I said, because of what I talked about, that that wasn't like a malfunctioning, it wasn't a badly malfunctioning AI system, right? So I, you know, I, I guess I would like to know a little, I should probably have read the decision myself by now, actually. Um, but I don't know if there was, a, maybe they never even brought it to, to court. So I don't know exactly what's going on. But uh, Uber, and, and Uber certainly lost a lot of money over it, right? They they withdrew all their stuff and they they did all this, you know, like it's like doing your Hail Marys or something, but like it's expensive Hail Marys, right? <laughs> but but they, they were doing all this stuff. But, but, um, but yeah, so I, I guess I think that, uh, that certainly by that narrative, we wouldn't want it to be, and this is actually, there's literally a term for this. Oh, I've forgotten the name of the woman. You might remember that uh, it's that, but the term is uh, moral crumple zone. You just don't want to like nominate some one random person that's responsible for the outcome of the AI system. You need to make sure that the person responsible is somebody who is in an executive position to change something. Um, and so, so that's why like it was the government of, of, of the, the, of the Netherlands, not the, you know, one of the many programmers that have been involved in building the system. Right. Because you know, ultimately it wasn't the pro, you know, even though the system was wrong, the issue is not that. This goes back to my PhD. This, the issue is not that there was a mistake in the software. The issue was that that mistake was not caught, that no one believed all these people that were talking to them, and nobody helped them go and examine what was going on. That's the problem, and that is absolutely a problem of governance, right? And so I think, I think that might have been what happened, although I don't know, but with Uber, that the Uber thing where they showed that they had done due diligence, they had done everything they could have done. They had, they were legally licensed to be driving on the road. This was a terrible, unfortunate accident. Accidents actually happen a lot. They kill almost as many people as guns in the U S which is saying something. And in fact, they do used to kill more people than guns, but I, th- I think guns may have gone up recently, but I can't remember anyway, but the point is, that, you know, on the order, right. Uh, so yeah, cause cars are awful. And, and, uh, you know, but anyway, the, the point is that, um, that it may well be that they were able to prove due diligence, but the, the driver was not able to prove that she was doing her job. And so that's why she got in trouble and they didn't. Yeah, I can understand that viewpoint. And thank you for that direction. I think I, I definitely wasn't trying to go after the, like, you know, she shouldn't be culpable at all. And I think there also can definitely be a role for, like, apportioning blame, you know, as opposed to putting yeah. it well, all on got, one party. Or no blame. Or, or, you know, but like I said, if something horribly wrong happens when everybody was doing their best job they could, then they do tend to say things like, oh, it was an act of God or whatever. And uh, so, and then what changes is due diligence. So the next time, uh, and that's what's great. People say, oh, you can't possibly regulate AI because it changes too fast. No, all you do is you say it's a product. And then ordinary product law is that you are liable unless you are keeping up with the standards of your sector, right? You have to be doing uh, best practice, avoiding worst practice, you know, doing due diligence, 
And so now when something like that happens, we update what was due diligence. We say, okay, this is another thing to look out for. Like my you know, 2017 paper on, on uh, bias and language, right? So now everyone's looking for that you know, and Amazon didn't look and that's culpable because the paper had come out like two or three years earlier. Everyone should have known that that happens when you use machine learning. Um, and most people do know, and there's like entire you know, conferences on it now, but, but, um, but so that's one thing people are looking for, but it's not ethics in itself, but that's the point. Once you make that discovery, you don't have to go change the law. All you have to say is now this is a normal part for this sector of, of their, of their due diligence. I think this would be a great place to end. And if you have time for just maybe one last question, we're recording this not too long after OpenAI released this interesting document preparing for AGI. And you had your own article living with AGI, which sort of addresses the kind of different ways in which people use the term artificial general intelligence. And I think that you found the idea that we might be kind of barreling towards this very soon, a bit of magical thinking, assuming things like infinite computation that you've talked about earlier in this conversation. And in the OpenAI article, I think this is kind of a response to, well, we just released ChatGPT. The world is amazed. Artificial intelligence has kind of entered the mainstream. People are excited about what we can do with it. And ergo, we should start thinking about the AGI question, which feels like a little bit of a jump to me personally. But I think as my my last question here, I'm curious. So I think I already know your answer to, you know, is this is this a thing that we should be thinking about in the way they are or not? So the question I do have then is what's the alternate vision now that we have systems like ChatGPT, now that people are worried about them, now that they're observing Microsoft's Bing going absolutely crazy and are worried it's going to like take over their government or something. What should we, how should we be responding to all of this looking forward? I guess the, the first thing we need to understand is that Bing is not going crazy. You know, it, it, what you're looking at is a program that doesn't have the same kind of memory you do, and it doesn't have very long memory, and it's not an ape, and it's not responsible, and it's not going to take anything over, right? What we should be worried about is, uh, you know, somebody like Microsoft, possibly Microsoft themselves, but, you know, so, somebody like that selling these systems into governments and saying, oh, you know, this isn't perfect, but it's better than your people. And then, uh, so so one thing is like that, that we're never going to be able to make all the predictions because it just isn't like us about like what, what what is intuitive and not intuitive. We also have like really weird common sense feelings, right? But we're used to them. We've had, we have like, you know, whatever, six or seven million years of being hominids. And we have like 10,000 years of culture that, that, that's written culture, you know, and, and we, we are able to like kind of anticipate some of the failings that are, you know, like the non-logical things our kids are going to do, right? Um, it's not going to be like that with AI because it's a totally different architecture of the way that the world is being represented. So there will always be these, you know, glitches. Um, so, so neither do you want to put that, you know, in tar- it doesn't even make sense. What is government? It's a coordination between humans. But the main thing that I've been worrying about sitting in the Center for Digital Governance at Hardy School is uh, that, you know, people are selling digitizing uh, uh, government services. So then the government doesn't know how to do their basic essential services. I heard a terrifying uh, talk from a PhD about, um, you know, outsourcing and digitizing uh, uh, voting. 
you know, that is absolutely essential to a, to a democracy. And if you don't, if you can't go again, if you can't go through and make sure if you don't have ways to check what happened in an election, right, then then your town could be taken over, right? It's not it's not just that the election might fall apart and, and go badly. It is also that you are opening yourself up to being hacked by people that understand the software better than you do, right? So um, I think the main problem, and I, and I thought this from the beginning, if you if you uh, if you anthropomorphize the AI, if you think the AI is like a person, then you're going to make a lot of mistakes, and people can take advantage of you, right? And that—that's my big, and and I'm I'm still horrified by the number of people that are fooling themselves. You know, smart people, very smart people, and not only people that work for Google, also like academics, who who fool themselves into thinking that this might just go somewhere if they add one more layer onto their network. You know, it's just like that's not what it takes to be an ape. <laughs> you know, it just isn't, and it's not what it takes to construct a motivational system that that is sufficient that we can negotiate with you. Well, this was a really refreshing conversation, Professor Bryson. I think that you bring a range of perspectives to some of these questions that I feel many people don't. And so um, I really appreciate this conversation and you're taking the time to chat with me today. Well, it's been a pleasure. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.